Can we bridge the culture gap between health tech and health care? Our guest today is Dr. Jill Hagencourt. Welcome to the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. I'm Joe Anderson. Tech culture is fast-moving, built on a philosophy of fail early, fail fast, fail often, develop a minimally viable product, and iterate quickly. Healthcare has traditionally been more slow-moving, concerned with getting things right the first time, doing the appropriate validation studies, and moving in a methodical way. Our guest today is the founder of a new venture called MDisrupt, providing medical diligence to the health tech community and helping to bridge the gap between health tech and health care. She has had an, an incredible career. She's a board-certified pathologist with subspecialty training in molecular genetics and pathology informatics. She has founded her own company, Icarius Diagnostic, and served as chief medical officer for four companies, Complete Genomics, Invite, 23andMe, and Color Genomics. She is, of course, Dr. Jill Hagencourt. Jill, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Now, before we talk about MDisrupt, let's talk a little bit about your early career in training. I'm guessing it wasn't a popular choice at the time going into molecular genetics and informatics. Uh, how did you choose that, and what did you envision for yourself as a career? I guess I kind of figured I was going to end up as an academic physician, especially if I go into molecular pathology, um, just because especially at that time, it was still pretty academic. Um, it was a very new specialty. And um, so was informatics. And I, uh, when I decided to do that, I mean, I was just kind of looking around, looking at my experience when I was at Stanford and kind of seeing the early signs of these massively parallel testing technologies that were being done in the research labs there and imagining how that is going to fundamentally change the practice of pathology and, and really the practice of medicine. And nobody was really preparing anybody for that inevit inevitability, the, the current, you know, training programs weren't addressing it at all. So I decided to um, go to UPMC and do a dual fellowship in both um, molecular genetic pathology and informatics so that I could handle the, the kind of massively parallel um, testing technology data sets, which are, are too large for a human to interpret without the assistance of a computer and kind of created my own training. You kind of forged your own path, so good for you. And UPMC was an incredibly supportive place for this. And, you know, I got excellent fellowship training there. Um, but when I did tell my residency chairman that I was going to do those two fellowships, he did. He said to me, um, uh, Jill, why don't you do a real fellowship? You're never going to get a job. <laughs> After residency training, you got a job as a junior faculty member at Creighton. Did you take a little time to get your feet wet there, get the lay of the land before you started your first company? Nope, did it on my first day. And what was the company? So it was, the company's name was Icarios Diagnostics, and it was a, a cancer cytogenomics company. Um, and the, the it's, it was based on the research that I was doing during my fellowship. And what it ultimately did is it let us digitalize a cancer genome um, for the first time in, in a way that I could, I could then visualize the cancer genome in silico and, you know, because of the technologies with the, the, the internet, there was like new things called these genome browsers that I could connect to. And so all of a sudden I could interact in real time with the changes that I'm seeing in the genome um, and 
see what what genes are affected by the changes that I was seeing. So it was pretty revolutionary and pretty awesome. Um, and in applying this to to cancer genomes, I could see changes in these cancer genomes that we before this didn't have any way to really visualize, certainly not in the clinical setting. And so Icarios was the first clinical lab in the world to offer clinical grade cancer cytogenomics. Um, and it really was detecting actionable information that we were, we were missing before. And so the science was really good. The science was really robust. The problem with the business model is that there wasn't really any um, um, barrier to access. It was really just know-how. I was just one of the first people to do it and one of the first people to publish on it. Um, but as soon as everybody saw the utility, um, it, it was easy for other people to, to learn how, and then other companies started making the software to do it rather than me having to use my hacky software. Um, and so now it's done in, in every major, you know, cancer testing laboratory in the, in the world. And, um, and so then in the end, we had to switch and, and see if we could just get acquired. Um, and then in that process, we would turn in, we were looking at kind of like other companies that were in similar spaces and would go do the, our pitches to them, which was again, another 50, 60, you know, pitches. And people would say, no, I don't really think we want to buy your, your company, but we're looking for a chief medical officer. We think you'd be great. Are you interested? So this actually ended up, we did find somebody to, to acquire um, Icarios, just enough money to kind of pay back the angels, didn't make anything. I got paid in sweat and on that one, um, sweat and experience. Uh, but I ended up getting me to my, to my first job. Um, I, I was reluctant to move back out to California because of the cost of living out here and my family's all in the Midwest, but um, had a great opportunity to come to complete genomics um, as the chief medical officer. And so that was really through this acquisition process when when they decided they needed a CMO, they, the CEO there, Cliff Reed, um, kind of hunted me down and uh, we it ended up turning into a, a job offer. So a lot of good did come from this. You had an exit, however modest. You got your first job as chief medical officer. And we can all learn from your experience. <laughs> yep. And you joined Complete Genomics right around the advent of next-gen sequencing. This must have been a very exciting time. Mm-hmm. There was a period of time in the uh, in the first decade of this century. I don't know what we're calling that decade. The aughts. There was a period of time that kind of got to, the the aughts. Okay. Um, that kind of got to be known as the genome wars, and that's when there was you know several sequencing technologies and no clear market winner had emerged yet. And so we were in the midst of the genome wars and, and complete genomics was, was definitely one of the contenders. Um, and, and, you know, in a lot of ways it was the right idea just a little bit before it's time. So they, they just, instead of um, focusing on um, kind of technologies that would do, um, you know, smaller portions of the genome, like just a, a targeted panel of genes or just an exome, they just said from the beginning, you know what, we're gonna build out this whole factory to do nothing but whole genomes because that's where all this is going anyway. Um, but because of that, it got, you know, got to a point where it was hard to stay price competitive, um, especially at a time when you couldn't really justify, you know, what was going on in the most of the, of the genomes. So it was hard to justify like reimbursement if you're gonna do it clinically. Um, and so the, the a market uh, winner did emerge, that company's name is Illumina. Um, and most of the other sequencing technologies quietly faded into the background, including um, complete.
Yes, I think we're all familiar with the success of Illumina. Complete Genomics' approach to whole genome sequencing uh, did bear some fruit. They were able to put 69 genomes with complete annotation into the public domain. Mm -hmm. Which was really important at that time, yeah, because we just didn't have a lot of whole human genome sequence. If you think about it, in, you know, in 2000, it, the first human genome was kind of sequenced. And um, that was a completion of the Human Genome Project. And it cost, it, it took what, you know, I want to say 15, 18 years and cost $3 billion. So, um, you know, just a few short years later, you could get a whole human genome for $10,000. But there's still up to that point had been so few genomes sequenced that it was hard to do anything with one single genome because you just didn't understand what all the variability could be and you needed more comparators. So there's Moore's Law in action. The cost of uh, sequencing a human genome going from over a billion dollars to under a thousand. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're down to that point now where you're in the thousand dollar range for a whole genome. And I think what many people may not appreciate about next-gen sequencing is obviously uh, the ability to sequence broadly across the genome is what allowed a uh, complete gen genome to be sequenced in the first place. But this massively uh, parallel sequencing technology allowed us to also go deep within the genome of, at a very extensive depth of coverage, which is really uh, what's allowing um, sequencing-based diagnostics to move forward. Yeah, yeah. And it really did start to unlock, um, you know, real medical applications. And where did you go after Complete Genomics? Uh, a company called Invite, and this was um, a brand new startup, very early days, founded by Randy Scott, who was the founder of Genomic Health, which up to that point had been kind of you know the main industry success story in in using genomics for diagnostics and, and kind of successfully scaling it. Um, and so he was kind of very well known and very highly respected in the industry. So I was really excited. Um, when they asked me to, you know, join as um, and their kind of founding executive team as the um, medical officer. And what was the mission of Invite? Their mission, they they wanted to um, be the first labs doing next generation sequencing clinically. Just you know, be a traditional diagnostic testing laboratory. You know, not a direct to consumer or anything like that. Just one, you know, a trusted medical sequencing laboratory, but to do it using this new technology. Let's talk about your experience at, at 23andMe. Sure, sure. Um, so that was like an amazing um, experience for a physician uh, to that, you know, the company was doing some really revolutionary things, especially since if, if you're following like the, the history of medicine and the trends in medicine, I mean, we really are going more towards um, you know an engaged consumer, and we're going to have to make it more patient centric, um, you know, in, in the very near future. And so I loved that 23andMe was kind of a pioneer in figuring out how to do that. And I feel really fortunate to, uh, as a physician, be ex have, having been exposed to how consumers react to health information about themselves, um, and. And the, the the real business there at 23andMe is, uh, you know, they're they're giving you some kind of health trinkets. They're giving you information about yourself, right? And it's it's ancestry, it's interesting traits, it's fun stuff, and then it's the you know, they're kind of trinkets, right? They were never really designed or optimized 
to, you know, be a screening test or to, you know, you know, fully screen for rule in a disease or rule out a disease. It's just kind of like trinkets that you could get off of their technology um, to, to give you some little information about, about your health. Um, and they brought me in to see if we could expand that to be, um, you know, actually real impactful health information. Um, it turned out uh, just opportunity came up and um, they got the opportunity to kind of fulfill what the long-term goal always was, which is become a drug company. And so they really want to disrupt the pharma R&D model by creating this big participatory um, network where the, the people who participate in pharma research you know, are, are kind of an ongoing part of the process and have a, a connection to the results when they come out and know what happened. And um, so they're, they're 23 and me pivoted into a drug company. And, at you know, so for that time being, they had to kind of back burner any efforts to, to do like substantial health um, testing, which is why I switched over to color because that was color's focus. Now, color genomics claims they offer clinical grade genetic testing. What exactly does that mean? And how is that different from uh, direct-to-consumer testing? Um, so there's so many interesting phrases being used um, kind of inconsistently. So um, consumer genetics is what I call the, the whole big um, area, uh, you know, field of, of companies and laboratories that enable consumer-initiated testing. And so that would be places like Helix and Color and Veritas and 23andMe. Um, and, you know, there's a number of, of other ones out there too. Um, and in that, there, it, it's actually hundreds of them, but many of them are offering things like, you know, genetics for fitness or nutrition or, you know, cosmetics. And none of those are, are actually, none of those claims are substantiatable. So like none of that's relevant to your health. So I kind of set all those aside. Um, and so if you're just kind of looking at the ones that give you, you know, health information, you know, that truly meet the definition of a medical device, um, 23andMe is a direct-to-consumer company. So you don't need a physician's order for that. And they went through the FDA to get that authorization. Um, and the other companies are actually physician ordered, but the physician is like an internet physician that, that the patient doesn't have a, a direct relationship with. Um, and so you go from, from the consumer point of view, they all feel exactly the same. Um, you go on, you order the test, you swipe your credit card, you submit a sample and the results come back to you through the com computer. But in the background, from a regulatory point of view, um, most of these consumer initiated genetics companies are physician ordered tests. And what's your opinion on the recent ACMG policy statement, which came out just this year in January of 2019, uh, my take is they're really looking to clamp down on what they perceive as non-indicated genetic testing in the general population. Um, and I actually agree. Right. And so you're referring to their recent emphasis um, that that gene of that panel of 59 genes that they articulated. Um, Right, the ACMG 59, uh, the 59 genes which they see as actionable. Maybe actionable. Okay, p potentially actionable. It's actually turned out, I mean, as the data has emerged, there's several of them that are not actionable at all. But at the time that they picked them, they thought they might be. Well, the statement says uh, the ACMG 59 was not validated for general population screening. 
and that this policy statement is meant to reduce unproven interventions based solely on genotype information. Yeah, so understanding the difference between how you design a test if you want to test people who have the disease or you think they have the disease, right? These high risk populations, which is what we've traditionally done in genetics, in medicine, and what the ACMG guidelines for variant classification um, are all based under the assumption that this patient probably has the disease or could have the disease because of, of personal and family history. Now, when you take that same exact test and you apply it to the general population, um, that has a huge impact on what we, what we call you know, the positive predictive value. So the positive predictive value of a test is dependent on the prevalence of the disease in the population. So these diseases are vanishingly rare and the positive predictive value plummets. And so some people have adjusted that and some laboratories have not adjusted that. Um, and there are some people who just aren't even aware that you design tests differently, right? The right people just aren't, the, the right people with the right educational backgrounds and the right training aren't empowered to make those decisions of selecting what genes go on a panel or how you would adjust the stringency of, of your, how you would adjust the specificity of your test to make sure you're not chugging out false positives. Like a lot of these places don't have, have anybody there who knows those really basic concepts in test development. And so that's where it's really turning wild west out there. You talk about a, a culture clash between health tech and health care. What do you mean by that? If you stop and think about it, it's super obvious and I'm not sure why you know, it took me so long to, to sort it out, but um, the, the people that come from the tech industry and especially here in Silicon Valley with, with consumer tech, um, like a lot of these people had just had a lot of success uh, by, you know, with Google, Twitter, um, Facebook, uh, Zappos, um, you know, all, all of these things that they, they've disrupted in the, in the last, you know, 15, 20 years here in Silicon Valley. And the way that they had that success and the success was success was for both, you know, the entrepreneurs themselves and the employees, um, but also the investors. And so they kind of came up with a recipe that worked really well in consumer tech. And this recipe is you raise some money and you get in your garage and you set up something really scrappy and they call this an MVP, a minimally viable product. You know, you know, they know that it has bugs. They know that it doesn't work properly. And, and you stand it up and you, and you sell it, right? You put it out there and then you learn and iterate in real time with real customers. And then in even oftentimes they'll put out, you know, it's almost like an, a box with nothing inside of it. And, and they'll have real people like going and looking things up and then, you know, spitting it back out on the other side as they're building the algorithm that's eventually gonna do that automatically. Um, this is that fake it till you make it mentality. Um, and the, uh, you know, go fast and break things. That's the iterate, like iterate and learn as fast as you can. And these are all like legitimate approaches to problem solving um, that are, are very much normal and expected in health tech industry. But when you do this in healthcare, <laughs> we've got a completely different culture and and reaction to those things. So if you think about, you know, standing up a minimally viable product, um, that means, okay, I'm, I'm going to put this thing out there. I'm not really sure how it works or if it's going to work or what it means or if it's going to be helpful, but I'm going to put it out there anyway. In healthcare, we call that 
you know, human subjects research and people have to be overtly consented to participate, right? And they have to understand all of these limitations and, and uncertainties. Um, and you certainly don't fake it till you make it, right? You don't say, hey, this thing works and it's gonna be amazing. It's gonna tell you all this information about yourself and all this personalized um, data that you're gonna get um, without telling them the caveats in healthcare. So it makes the healthcare industry extremely uncomfortable. It certainly made me extremely uncomfortable. Um, I think most evidently, if you if you read Bad Blood or if you're familiar with with the Theranos story, where I mean they had a box and they kind of pretended that the box worked when they were really just running the samples back to a traditional chemistry analyzer and running them back there and then handing the you know spitting the results out through the front of the box and acting like their box was working. And in in the tech industry, that that's you know doing a mock demo is not an absurd thing to do. Like it's a pretty common thing to do. Um, but in healthcare, we consider it pretty misleading. Bridging this cultural gap, is that what led to the founding of MDisrupt? MDisrupt um, emerged out of uh, 10 years is, is the amount of time that I've, I've spent, you know, as a chief medical officer of these various health tech startups and genomic startups. And um, I've obviously watched all of the other ones in the industry around me, and I've had colleagues who have worked at a number of different ones. And and it my life just was becoming like Groundhog Day, like I was just watching the same movie over and over. I would watch these companies make the same mistakes. Um, and they're smart people, right? They they will iterate and learn, right? And eventually four or five years down the line when they're close to running out of, out of, out of money and the investors want their money back, they'll realize, oh, I guess we do actually need a health economic study, right? Where I told them in year one, you're never gonna get to, you know, a widespread market adoption without an economic model. We need to plan and budget for that. Um, and so, so to watch just every company in health tech make these same mistakes that, that really cost them hundreds of millions of dollars, um, years of, of time and, and opportunity cost. And it was just so frustrating because the talent pool out here is ridiculous, right? The, the engineering talent, the product design talent is just the best in the world. And if we would take that talent and, and kind of harness it with people who actually understand what are real problems in healthcare that are tractable and really need to be solved, um, you know, what are the way? How does this healthcare market work? How do you get paid? What are the what do the decision makers care about? Um, how do you actually design, a, you know, a safe and effective um, health product? If you took the people who knew that and combined it with the people who have you know, all of these amazing um, tech skills that, that you know, develop Google Maps and you know, other you know, game-changing technologies. Um, imagine what the difference we could make in healthcare. And I mean, we all agree that our healthcare system is terribly broken and needs to be disrupted, but we're not gonna be able to do it until we get a better balance between the healthcare and the tech cultures and the healthcare and the tech skill sets. And so that's what MDisrupt's mission is, um, is to kind of bridge that gap um we've got uh right now we, we provide what we call medical diligence so any company or investor um or strategic partner who wants to know if a health tech company that they're thinking about investing in or working with is legit um which is a lot of data out there right now showing that many of them are not and many of them are making false claims um they're pretty easy to spot <laughs> so we're happy to do um a kind of a viability assessment and and write that up. So there is hope. There is a 
a path in developing these tests the right way and achieving widespread clinical adoption? Yeah, you know, because it although it's it's hard and it takes longer to generate data than to not generate data. <laughs> um, but it's all the, the data is all necessary and it is a well-worn path. There's nothing mysterious about it. Um, you know, you need analytical validity, clinical validity, clinical utility, some kind of health economic model, and then some kind of prospective study. Real world evidence is becoming more and more acceptable. And if, if you can't do um, um, an, a, a clinical trial. Um, and then once you're at that point or even before that last step, now um, that's when you can start to like, you know, get consideration for um, inclusion in medical professional society guidelines and get coverage decisions by by payers and Medicare. Um, and so, but if you, without that data, without going through that gauntlet, you'll never, you'll never get included in guidelines or, or get coverage decisions. And that, that, that content and that, and that clinical dossier is what the healthcare industry expects before they're going to agree to pay for something. And it can't just be, you know, a flashy PowerPoint slide and a, a good, you know, uh, you know, customer review on Amazon. It's, it's, it's gotta be real data. You've written some really informative blog posts uh, for MDisrupt on things such as the difference between medical and scientific expertise, the difference uh, between medical specialties, and even differences uh, in things between MD versus PhD laboratory directors. Um, yeah, so this actually goes back to like one of the missions of, of MDisrupt. Um, the what we're doing right now is I wrote some blogs, um, my co-founder wrote some blogs, and then now all of our um, we're calling them M disruptors, right? All of these people in the health industry who are, are frustrated with what they see going on in health tech um, are all offering to write blogs about their area of expertise. And the, and the idea is to educate um, tech entrepreneurs and, and tech investors and to kind of help the health professionals that are in these companies kind of have, um, usually we're the only one, usually I'm the only medical um, professional in, in a company and, and the only MD. And so I'm always outnumbered. It's like 200 to one. I'll say something super obvious. Like if you're going to do a screening test, you have to have a positive predictive value. And they'll say, uh, -uh. and I'll say, pretty sure you do. And, um, <laughs> so it would be, but there's nobody else with my, my experience training or background. So ever it's just kind of, it's an inconvenient truth to the rest of the company. Um, and so it, 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 turns into this long-standing unresolved debate. And this, this can, you know, I can give you a hundred examples of stuff like that. And so the blogs on MDisrupt are really designed um, for those entrepreneurs and investors who want to learn, who want to understand what is clinical validity and does this company have it? Or um, the, these blog series is a resource um, to back up the health tech professionals who are kind of alone in these industries and, um, and to teach those, um, non-medical people who want to learn about it and and the stuff that we have to share is like really basic like one would be an example of needing a positive predictive value in a screening test jill how can people find out more about you and m disrupt and even possibly about becoming an m disruptor themselves um well you can go to uh, my linkedin page or you can go to um, www.mdisrupt.com um uh there's information there. If you want to get involved, you can go to our team page. And at the bottom of the team page, there's a button you can click um, if you want to become an M disruptor. Our guest has been Dr. Jill Hagencourt. Jill, thank you so much for coming on. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much for having me. 
This has been the Personalized Diagnostics Podcast. We'll see you next time. Thank <music> you.